Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, following up, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. All right, guys. Welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today, I'm joined by a guy named Zach Hankey, and he is from Oklahoma. This guy's had his hands in just about everything from state wildlife agencies to the mouths of catfish. He's turkey hunted and deer hunted and trapped. And so I'm excited to pick his brain on a lot of these different things that I haven't been involved in or haven't got to try yet. So I'm pumped about that. But before we dive into the talk, I want to make you aware of a few things. Here in Missouri, whitetail season has officially ended for the 2021-2022 year. And I'm bummed. I mean, I had one of the best hunts that I've had all year as far as sheer amount of deer that I saw. But didn't end up with getting a shot at anything. I mean, I did pull my bow off the hanger, so that was kind of cool. But the deer didn't fully come in. And so um, I'm excited, though, for next year. I'm excited to do some habitat improvement this summer and early fall. And I'm excited to try out a few new sets at some properties that I just haven't put a ton of time into. But looking at them now, walking around them a little bit more, I think they're going to be some some great like rut spots 
and maybe even some early season spots, depending on how much deer activity there is all throughout the summer. So I'll probably get some trail cameras up in a few new properties, and I really want to try trapping. My buddy is in, is in Kansas right now trapping, and he's had some amazing success. We'll talk about that here on the show in just a little while as well. But I think buying a couple of traps, getting them out there, see what happens. I might get hooked on that. So stay tuned for all that. Also, we do have new apparel coming out. It's going to be out any day now. So keep your eye out for that. And uh, I think you guys are going to like the designs. Let's hop into this podcast with Zach. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today, I've got Zachary Hankey in uh, he's a guy I connected with on social media, but he sent me this list of all the different things that he does. He hunts, um, he traps, he noodles. I don't think I've talked to anybody who noodles on here yet, so we might dive into that, that a little bit. But um, welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, why don't you start out by sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into hunting, what your favorite type of outdoor activity is, that type of thing. All right. I'm uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, I went to college at Oklahoma State University and got a natural resources degree. I've always been involved in hunting. My dad raised me hunting and fishing and trapping and just anything and everything outdoors. And uh, after I got my natural resources degree, I worked for the state of Kansas, uh, Parks and Wildlife, for a year as a uh, seasonal technician and then i got a job working for the oklahoma department of wildlife for a couple of years and me and my wife moved back to stillwater because she wanted to work here at the hospital so i quit working for the wildlife department and i started my own flooring business nice so what uh what did your work look like with each of those departments i mean were you doing habitat improvement restoration uh surveys what kind of stuff were you involved in a little bit of everything. Uh, Kansas was probably one of the coolest jobs. Uh, worked for uh, Meridazine Wildlife Area and Lacing Wildlife Areas and primarily wetlands. And okay. lots of lots of flooding and uh, dike work. I got to run a little bit of equipment. Uh, we actually had a pump that was on the river that could pump 10,000 gallons a minute. Holy cow. It, it flooded probably 20 wetlands. I don't know how many thousands of acres, but we got to open it full bore whenever we first started it for the season. And that was, I mean, probably, a, I think it was a three foot pipe. And I mean, it looked like a fire hose coming out at the end of Jeez. it. it cool. Did you ever uh, inflate a tube and just go for a ride? <laughs> no, no, I didn't, didn't do that. Uh, and then when I worked, they had, so it seemed like Kansas had a little bit more money to work with. We had four different tractors, uh, all the implements you think of, a skid steer, a bunch of implements, and uh, shoot, they had like John Deere coming, like pick up 
all four tractors and we made a list of everything that was broke on them and they picked all of them up took them back to the shop serviced all of them and then brought them back whereas Dang. like oklahoma didn't seem to quite have that kind of funding which yeah. was all right you know we worked on a lot of our own stuff and kind of had to make things do with what we had and probably a lot of that comes down to uh not having like parks and tourism involved in it yeah and probably just money wise they probably sell more licenses and their licenses are worth more and all that kind of stuff but uh then working for oklahoma i worked in southeastern oklahoma down there by McAllister for a year and a half ish and uh it's like forest management type stuff did a lot of like really large burns which is actually what my my college degree is actually a prescribed fire option. So oh, cool. really enjoyed that too. And uh, logging and there's a lot of research associated with the Pushmataha WMA that I worked at. And then when I left there, I went to Western Oklahoma and there's quite a bit of research associated with that WMA too. So I got to be involved in a lot of research, but uh, managing prairie ecosystem, large burns. We had wetlands, uh, a lot of turkey roost habitat restoration. Oh, nice. Uh, so super, super cool stuff. Just very diverse between all three jobs. Oh, I bet. So do you think that's something you're going to try to get back into um, in the future? Is there like a dream job somewhere that you would that you'd want? So the last job I had at Packsaddle was actually – my dream job as a kid because i hunted out there oh that's cool from the time i was like 12. and so that was pretty cool getting to work out there where i grew up hunting already knew the wma really well and uh but dream job would be to work with private landowners and uh there's positions available through the department to do that and so and you can do it through nrcs and starting your own business etc i mean there's a lot of different ways to get into it i'm hoping to get back that direction and get out of the construction yeah cool. yeah i've had a couple people um i it's funny i don't own any of my own property i just have access to some from people that i've known throughout the years and several of my friends have recently bought land of their own and i go over there and i'm like all right dude this is what you need to do and i've got this whole game plan for them and I'm just like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to tell you what to do with your land. Like, this is yours. This is just what I would do if it was mine. And we joke all the time. They're like, dude, you need to get your own land or you need to start a business where you help people do habitat improvement. And I'm like, yeah, the only problem is, well, there's people like Zach out there that actually have degrees in this stuff. And here I am, just <laughs> some guy with absolutely no experience, just a dream of what I would do with my own property. But there's a, there's a huge market for it right now. People are buying hunting land left and right. And so if you can get out there and get your name out there as somebody who can come and be, um, basically just go out there and show them what they need to do and where they need to do it. And to what scale, I mean, people pay for it. Yeah. That's kind of, kind of a neat thing as far as how the hunting community has progressed as things become popular and unpopular and land management habitat is something that has become extremely popular in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. 
And yeah. uh, it's, it's cool to see because that's going to make a lot of difference on habitat wise across the board. Yeah. Um, so you, you said you're in Oklahoma now, do you have any property of your own that, that you do that stuff for, or a hunting property that you like to go out to that you can do habitat improvement, restoration or anything like that on? No, me and my wife are kind of looking at trying to buy some land, but being next to a college town, land prices are extremely high. Oh yeah. So we're, uh, we're in the market, but we're kind of putting things on hold. I'm having a, uh, baby on March 17th or first. Hey, congrats. So we're putting that on the back burner until we can, uh, get, get her brought into the world and get us and the baby kind of settled. And then we'll go back probably looking for that. So, uh, all the property I have right now, I don't pay anything for, uh, last year, I think I had five pieces of property. I can't tell how many hours I spent driving around, knocking on doors and talking to people, especially around the college town, you know, how many college kids probably knock on everybody's doors looking for places to hunt. Oh yeah. And uh, I spent a lot of time last season doing that. And it's, it's definitely paid off. So that's good. Yeah. The, the whole like knocking on doors and asking for permission is something that I'm trying to work on. Uh, I'm not very good at it. I just assume that everyone's going to say no all the time. And I feel like that's probably the case in a lot of places, but I've actually had a ton of success, but my issue is I get complacent with where I'm hunting. So I'll get access to a place and I'm like, man, I'm going to hunt, I'm going to hunt the crap out of this for like four or five years until I don't have access to it anymore. When what I should be doing is getting even more access to other spots. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you were talking about just assuming that people are going to say no, and I think that's actually probably an important thing for people to do if they are out there looking, because it's more than likely going to happen. And if you just assume that you're going to get t- told no, uh, you're not going to be offended by the fact that they do tell you no. Yeah, and uh, it makes it a little bit easier whenever you get the answer that you're expecting. It makes it really nice whenever you get the answer that you aren't expecting. So. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to be in the landowner's shoes at some point when they're like, "Yeah, go ahead." Cuz the look on my face is probably like, "Wait, hold on, are you serious? You're letting me hunt for anything?" Okay, sweet. Um, but yeah, I what we run into a lot of out here is people saying, "Hey, I've got cattle and I don't want people shooting my cattle." Like, when I ask for coyote hunting permission, that's in my mind the easiest thing for to get people are going to be like oh yeah i don't want those around i've got goats i've got chickens i've got cattle and anytime i ask for it it seems like i would say 80 percent of the time people are like man i've got cows out there i don't want you shooting one of them and i'm like okay the odds of me accidentally shooting a cow i don't think they're in their mind it's like a case of mistaken identity but sometimes it, that's how it comes across. Like, man, I don't want someone accidentally shooting a cow. And I'm like, do you know how different a cow and a coyote are? Like, if I mistook a cow for a coyote, you just shouldn't let me drive. You shouldn't put a gun in my hands. I should have – I need my eyesight checked for sure. But, but yeah, I need to – that's something I'm going to work on this year is getting out and get more permission. Yeah. That's one of those things. You're constantly losing permission on places – so 
to keep up having permission, you have to continually be looking for it, knocking on doors and asking. And uh, I think that's another part of some of the success I've had with that is having multiple places to go. So I'm not constantly over hunting the same properties, especially with them being smaller properties. Like I've got one that's like 20 acres right by my house and uh, it wouldn't take hardly any pressure at all to completely blow that whole thing out. So, yeah, I, uh, I've hunted the same property for like 10 years in a row here in Missouri. Now I mix in different spots that I hunt on it because it's, like 230 acres is the main chunk. And then there's another 43 and a half, I think down the road and another 40 acres next to that. And so like I've got different spots and so I'll bounce around, but when I've got over 300 total acres out here to hunt and I'm the only one who's been given permission on it, I'm like, I don't really need to go anywhere else. Now I stayed away from one of the chunks that like the 43 and a half acres, I stayed away from that for quite a while. I would go out there and coyote hunt I do a couple days of turkey hunting out there because typically you could see them like all the way in the back corner. And so I'd go out there and try to try to shoot a turkey or some coyotes. But as far as deer go, the neighbors to that property, they hunt real hard and they hunt the property line and they shoot so many deer. But I'm like, man, they're already there. They live there. They've lived there for a long time and they haven't had to compete with anybody else. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. Well, there were some issues with the main hunting property that, uh, where I've got a couple stands hung. Uh, I found a trail camera and some corn that was dumped there like 50 to 70 yards behind my stand. And so you can't hunt over bait here in Missouri. And even, even if it's, I'm not the one that put it out. I don't think I would have a case if I continued to hunt there knowing that the corn was out, you know, like I think I'd still probably get in trouble. So we pulled our stands down and move them to this other property. So I went out there and sat and it was kind of funny. I, we were up in the tree, me and my buddy, we did a double, we put two stands up in the same tree. We only had two days left to hunt. So we're like, all right, we're going to get back out there. And we're sitting up in the stand and we look over and there's this dude out on the road, probably 300 yards from us taking pictures of the license plate on the truck. And I'm like, Oh man, we were about to get down anyways. So we said, Hey, let's go. We climbed down from the stand, go over. He was gone by the time we got over there. So we drive down the road and here he is walking his dog. So we stopped and talked to him and I was like, Hey man, saw you taking pictures of the truck. Wanted to come introduce ourselves. Like, I'm sure you're not used to seeing people parked out here hunting this, your, your neighbor's property. And he's like, Oh no, no problem. It actually ended up being really cool. I, uh, I talked with him for, I don't know. We probably talked with, with him for 20 minutes or so heard stories about the deer they've been shooting. I had seen pictures of a buck that I targeted years ago and found out it was shot opening day of rifle season. And this guy that we were talking to is actually the one who shot it. And so I was like, Oh man, what a bummer. But it ended up being a really positive experience and encounter. Um, and that's kind of what I've found in that area is most people know each other. I mean, everybody's a cousin of somebody else. And so once you have a connection with one, odds are you can get access um, on other properties. Yeah. It's, it's cool how harvested deer like that kind of bring people together. We were, uh, I've got a spot north of my house a few miles. It's like a hay field. And uh, 
me and one of my buddies at the time, he was a master's student here at OSU, got on that place and he ended up killing a really nice deer. Didn't look like it, but it come out to 151 and uh, put it on social media. And he had like four or five different people message him and tell him that he was hunting a deer. And uh, one of them was the guy that hunts the neighboring property. And now we keep in pretty good close touch with him and send pictures back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that one needs another year type deal. And it works out pretty cool how how deer can actually bring people together, even whenever you're not the one that harvested them. So. Yeah, that's that's my thing. I'm like, man, I like to hear stories. And even if I don't get the deer, I like to hear that somebody else was able to, to harvest it, to put the meat to use, all that. Um, but it was definitely a heartbreaker. I didn't find out that that deer was dead until the week of Easter the following year. I was out wow. fishing and I ran into this guy and he's like, Hey dude, uh, I was actually, it was a guy that I had never met. He was on the property that I hunt and the, the old landowner, he would give permission to anybody to come in and fish on his pond. Right. And it was it wasn't a huge pond, but it had some decent bass activity and some crappie and bluegill. And anyways, this guy was out there fishing. We start talking, we start talking about hunting and it was like, Oh yeah, man, I'm after this big buck. And I showed him a picture from like the summer, late summer, early fall before, right after it shed velvet. And I'm like, yeah, this buck. And he goes, ooh, man. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, that, that buck got killed opening day of rifle season. And I'm just like, you go in, like your heart drops into your stomach, right? You're just wanting to throw up. And sure enough, he showed me a picture and I was like, oh, Oh man, that's a big deer. That is a big deer. I think when I just talked to the guy uh, a couple days ago, he said it had like 13 and a half inch G2s on both sides and it was just a perfect eight. I mean, like I have pictures of it turned sideways and the right side of the rack is completely gone because it's that symmetrical. Like the left side completely hides it behind and it was a good deer. So, yep, but that one's dead. That's just part of it, you know, especially during the rut. Like, our our rifle season here in Missouri is typically, like, in the middle of the rut. And so, most of these deer, like, you, you could have a really good chance of shooting a big buck you've never seen during the rut here um, with your rifle. But you got to know, a lot of the deer that you're hunting are going to be putting on some miles chasing after does running creek bottoms and river bottoms scent checking and that's exactly what happened with this one that's i had a similar scare this year thankfully it wasn't the deer i was after but uh got a deer right here close to town that's probably got 30 points 180 plus inch deer and there was a news story somebody sent me that was like, oh, yeah, you know, this huge, huge deer, a whole bunch of points was killed within like five miles of campus. And my freaking heart just sank. I was oh, like, oh no. my gosh, somebody got him. Pulled up the article and it wasn't that deer. So it was a I'm different thinking, one. So there's two deer like yeah. that out there. Yeah. I was like, what's the odds that there was two deer like that? And I, of course, at that point, you know, I'm freaking ecstatic and happy that it wasn't that deer. But uh, yeah, I know exactly how that feels. Dang. Well, that's, that's exciting. Do you have, do you have trail camera pictures of the, the deer? Mm-hmm. Dude, you got to send those over, man. I want to see these things now. 
Uh, we, my buddy's got one that looks like a reindeer. I mean, it's antlers are just so weird and they're tall. Like, have you seen, have you seen the Grinch with Jim Carrey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, the deer looks like Max when he decks him out like a reindeer. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, man, what a freak. It just has a weird rack setup. And he's like, there's two of them out there like that. They, yeah. they must be twins from the same doe because he said, he was talking to the landowner and he's like, Oh yeah, there's two deer like that. And my buddy's like, how do you know? And he's like, I saw them together. They were standing in the field next to each other. He's like, excuse me. One of them had a dark rack and one of them had a real light rack, but they were standing side by side. So I know there's two of them. And I'm like, Oh man. Well, it turns out one of them did get shot. And so it sounds like there's still one out there, but, uh, I'm not fortunate enough to have multiple 180 inch deer roaming the properties that I hunt. I have multiple like 140s, maybe 150s. I did see a 180 one time on my main hunting property and I saw it at 350 yards in the fog. And I mean, I say it was a 180. It came in with like a 140 inch deer that ended up walking up to me and I shot it and that that bigger one just disappeared. That's the only sighting I've ever had of it. But come to <clears throat> come to find out, one of the neighbors has a picture of it. He's just got like maybe an acre, acre and a half out there, and he puts trail cameras up behind his house. And he got a picture of it, and he's like, "It's a main tw- mainframe twelve with trash everywhere. It's well over twenty four inches wide, and has just giant. I mean, the, everything he said about this, I'm like, okay, I don't." He's got a trail camera, so odds are he hunts, but also I can never trust anyone. But I did see it in person. It was a long ways off, but just based off of one sighting of it, I was like, that's got to be a 180-inch deer. I mean, it was gigantic. And that's it. That's my only encounter with a buck of that caliber out here. Yeah. See, I've never even seen it. I've seen this deer one time, and it wasn't this year. He was. I saw him last year. I got permission on this property last year. It took me months of trying to find the lady that owned it and finally got a hold of her. She's the nicest lady. Oh, yeah, go ahead and you'll go hunt. You know, it's kind of close to town. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to bow hunt if that's all right. She was like, oh, yeah, she's that's that's wonderful, you know. And so uh, the first day I was on the property, I didn't walk 200 yards into it and I kicked him up. And oh, last man. year he was probably like 140s. And he was still in velvet, so he even looked bigger. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. So I put out trail cameras, and I got a lot of pictures of him last year. And uh, started talking with some of the people that were right around there, had trail cameras out. And uh, they had pictures of him that year and the year before. And I got a text from one of them. Uh, one of them was actually one of my buddies in college. And uh, he sent me a text message. He was like, yeah, one of the neighbors shot that deer. And sure enough, he had shot him. Didn't make good enough shot on him last year. And uh, didn't kill him. Had pictures of him all during the rut, coming through in the middle of the night. Jeez. Probably had probably close to 100 pictures last year of him after that guy had shot him. And uh, then he come back this year and went from like a 140s to a 180 and just trash everywhere, which I'm thinking is probably just from the injury. Yeah. And he's put on that trash on because of that. So I don't know what's going to happen next year. Uh, I actually found a shed from two years ago, like three weeks ago. 
Oh, nice. Yep. I was driving in to one of my sets to put out some more bait, and on my way out, I looked over, and it was just laying there like 20 yards off the road, and I was like, Of course. Holy crap. You know, I got out and grabbed it, and there's a there's a younger deer that looks really similar to him, and I was thinking it was that shed, and I got back to the house and scrolling through pictures, and I was like, I don't think that's him. And so I sent a picture to my buddy that's had pictures of him, and he was like, uh no he said that's that big deer from two years ago and he sent me pictures and sure enough it's it's his left side i think or right side it's his right side from two years ago that's awesome yeah i uh i'm the worst shed hunter on the planet i just i was talking to my buddy brian he was on a recent podcast episode he's in north dakota right now and he kept sending me videos on instagram all afternoon yesterday and it's him walking up and pulling a shed out of the snow. And I'm like, man, come on. He ended up finding two match sets and then I think just the left side yesterday. And he's like, do you think I should go out tomorrow? The office is closed because Martin Luther. And I'm like, you just found two match sets and a single in one afternoon. I would be out there tomorrow, 100%. You shouldn't be asking my permission. Just go do it. And so... <laughs> I keep I keep joking with him. I'm like, man, I wish I lived closer. I'd come up there and hunt with, or I'd come up there and walk it with you tomorrow. But I just never have good luck with it. I I go out. I found. I mean, at this point, I found a couple sheds, uh, two mule deer sheds, a whitetail shed, and the whitetail shed was this tiny three point side. I think I was rabbit hunting, and I went to step over a log, and it, I almost stepped on it. Other than that. I haven't found a whitetail shed ever and I've, I've glassed a ton of elk sheds and mule deer sheds while hunting and multiple situations where they were kind of stolen out from under me, even though they weren't mine. I mean, I hadn't picked them up, but I knew where they were. Someone overheard where they were and went and they got them. Um, but yeah, as far as whitetail sheds go, I'm not the guy to take out. I'm so bad. I'm the guy to take out if you want to find some because anyone I'm with finds them, but I just don't. So uh, I'm hoping that, to get out a little bit more this year and put some miles on and see what I can come up with. Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with the property that you, you're looking for on to. Yep. Because like, I worked out there at Western Oklahoma. I was really good friends with some people that live there in town, and they've got a hunting ranch that's got like 11,000 acres and the WMA I worked on was like 20,000 acres and I'd go look for sheds and I might find one every two or three times I went out and they've got like big wheat fields and stuff. And I mean, they just get packed full of deer out there yeah. in Western Oklahoma and they just drive around those wheat fields with their razors and they pick up like 40 or 50 in a Jeez. day. I hear of guys out West with like, big mud spots, mud flats, or uh, sand traps, some of them call it, and they'll just go out to those spots and pick up elk antlers because they go out there and they're just, like, raking the ground and stuff. Yeah, just a wallow, and they'll just go out there, and there's just elk antlers sticking out of the mud just waiting to be grabbed. I'm like, gosh, that sounds like a tough life, guys. Yeah. Hey, uh, that, that big buck that you're after, the 180, do you are you yeah. the type of guy that names deer? So, th- he does have a name, but if I tell you the name, there's enough people that know 
what I'm talking about, and I don't really want everybody to know that I'm hunting there. So. Oh, okay. That's. Oh, I, I can tell you afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Tell me so. afterwards. I respect. I respect that decision. Anytime you can keep your hunting property, you kind of hush hush. I get that. Yeah. I uh, I started posting pictures of deer that I got on camera, and the landowner sent me a message, and he's like, "Hey, dude." You should probably, or no, I think I went over and talked to him at one point, and he's like, hey, Dan, you might not want to post anything like that on social media anymore. And I'm like, why? He's like, I'm getting people calling me asking if they can hunt my property. And I'm like, I've never said your name. There's a handful of people that know that we even know each other. And he's like, somehow it got out because people are asking. They said they've been seeing your social media posts, the stuff that you've been talking about, and they've been asking to come hunt and I'm like dang man you can't hide anything I wanted to get like a I wanted to get like a wrap on my truck that had like my logo and stuff on it but then I'm thinking anybody who sees that out in the field they're gonna be like wait that's where he hunts I've watched that guy's account and seen the bucks out here I'm gonna come back oh it's frustrating I think I'm just gonna start driving around like a Kia Soul or something like that and it'll be very inconspicuous nobody will think I'm hunting out there I'll I'll put all kinds of stickers on that kind of hint the other way that I'm maybe like a PETA sticker. I don't know. <laughs> I got to figure out some way to get people, <laughs> throw people off my trail. Oh, yeah, especially if you like hunting public land and stuff like that. That could be get really frustrating really quick. Oh, yeah. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called Bull Elk Beard Oil. Now, if you spend any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain or in the marsh or in the woods, you felt the effects of the wind, the sun, and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention it smells great, so now when I get home after a week of elk hunting, my wife can't complain as much. I need to tell you though, I've gotten to know Brian, the founder, over the past couple months, and he's an awesome guy. He makes all of this by hand in North Dakota out of clean products. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community, whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions, or even something awesome like helping donate money to cover the surgery costs of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy, and he makes an amazing product. So go check out Bull Elk Beard Oil, and you can get 20% off with the code NOMADIC. What is your favorite thing to hunt? Uh, probably turkeys. I absolutely love turkey hunting. Okay. So I've always always had pretty good success with it, and there's nothing that gets me more fired up than a bird that just won't shut up. Yeah. What uh, Do you have like a specific setup that you do for turkey hunting? Do so you do like a jake and a hen? Do you do a tom? Um, what kind of decoy spread are you using when you're, when you're turkey hunting? So it really, really depends. And it has changed a lot here in the last few years. I grew up hunting public, so we would usually only carry a hen with us. So somebody didn't accidentally shoot Jake decoy that was on somebody's back or something like that. So we didn't, I didn't ever really grow up using Hindi or Jake or Tom decoys. Uh, but I got in college and stuff, made buddies with a whole bunch of people and we'd go hunt their private stuff and they usually bring a Tom or a Jake or 
something. And uh, so that kind of changed the way I hunted there. And then when I started working for Kansas and for Oklahoma Department of Wildlife, working on those WMAs, it changed even more because I went back from not using a Jake and a Tom and everything. And then, so I worked in Southeastern Oklahoma, that's the Eastern population. And I grew up hunting Rios Okay. and it's way different. It's insanely different. And I didn't, I would have never guessed the difference in intelligence between an Eastern and a Rio. An Eastern is way smarter crazy like I, I grew up using the phone decoys just because walking in on public land they're easier to carry they're lightweight easy to set up quick and kind of run and gun type hunting and then uh so i went down there working in, in eastern oklahoma and i went hunting on my wma and put out one of the phone decoys and had a hen and a tom come in and as soon as she saw that phone decoy she knew exactly what it was and she started putting and like walking off and i was like what on earth like that's crazy and then just so my boss he grew up he works worked for nwtf kind of on the side and then worked for odwc and uh, as turkey biologist for the state and he was telling me that you can't rodeo in eastern and i didn't know what he's talking about rodeo but like basically swinging on one and shooting it and i was like it's a turkey yeah and so I had this hen come in and she seen the decoy. Well, the tom actually come into the trees with me. Like got all nervous and going to cover, I guess. Yeah. And I did. I, I swung on that bird and I got lucky because the bird was at like 20 yards when I went to swing on it. And I dropped him at 50 and it didn't take freaking two seconds to mm-hmm. get on him and swing for a trigger. And See, we've got. Rio, just aren't like that. They'll just put their head up like, what was that? And you, and you smoke See, maybe we've got dumb turkeys here because I am not a good turkey hunter at all. Like, if if you need turkey advice from anybody, talk to someone who doesn't like me because they would... I mean, like, I just... I have never killed a turkey the traditional way. I've spot and stalked turkey multiple times. I've killed some really nice birds, and none of them have come in, like pissed off, strutting, gobbling in my face. I mean, I've seen them close like that, and the only time I've had an opportunity to shoot one, it was on the neighbor's property, and so I couldn't. I mean, I could have, and then just jumped over, grabbed it, and thrown it over, but that's just not my style. So I've never successfully called in a Tom, got him strutting and upset, and then shot him. And I think for that reason... I'm not hooked on turkey hunting. I'm just like, yeah, it, it bridges the gap between deer season and deer season. But uh, other than that, I just, I don't know. I think that if I could get them to work like what you're saying, a bird's just not shutting up and he comes in, I could do it. But the Easterns around here where I hunt, come on over. You can, what did he call it, rodeo them? Yeah. Yeah, you you can rodeo the Easterns here. They are so stupid. I have, hmm. yeah, I've I've snuck in on them. My cousin sent me, so I got one of those turkey fans. You know what that is? It's like an umbrella with a yeah. turkey print on the front of it. I would not recommend hunting with that on public land ever. But on private land, he, uh, I had 
I had taken it out and I would go from property to property and I'd get out and I'd go up on a hill and try to glass and see if there was anything around or, you know, I'd stay in a river bottom and creep through and see if I could find some. And, uh, I was unsuccessful. I, I used that as a crutch though. Like I didn't try to do it the traditional way. I was like, man, I got this Turkey fan. I'm just going to walk up on birds. And I just didn't have any good setups to where I could actually do it. I missed, like, I think it was my first day of turkey season that year. And my cousin's like, hey, man, can I take the fan out? Sure, why not? And I get a picture of him with this, like, 23-and-a-half-pound bird. And I was like, hold on, what? Where was that? And he told me right where it was, right where I, I mean, I've gone through this spot a 100 times. And he uh, he saw this bird at, like, 300 yards, walked right up to it behind this fan. I mean, right up to it. And shot it at like 35 yards. And I'm like, dude, that's in the middle of a cattle pasture. Like you had no cover anywhere. He's like, no, I didn't. I, I just literally crouched down and walked straight to this bird and shot it. Um, since then, I've actually used that fan twice, I think, to kill a bird. Um, and it works great. N- my next goal, though, is to get, I think it's the ultimate predator decoy. Um, have you seen those? They clip on the front of your bow. And you can shoot through them. So you can get like a turkey. You can get antelope, moose, elk, mountain lion. I, I don't think mountain lion. Mountain goat, uh, mule deer, whitetail, basically anything. You got to look them up. They're pretty cool. It's just a silhouette decoy that goes on the front of your bow and you actually shoot through it. And uh, I've watched some videos of people sneak right up on turkeys, mule deer, elk, you name it. So That's cool. Maybe I'll have to have you come over because you sound like you know a lot more about turkey hunting than I do. And so you can come over here, get a tag. We'll go out and you can show me how to actually call a bird in. (laughs) Well, it it changes from state to state too. So I've been, I've hunted in Missouri once. I've got an uncle that lives in Springfield. And uh, that's where we're at. Yeah. And uh, I've, I just went over there and deer hunted with him one year. So it was a kind of like a graduation present type deal and got to go up there and hunt with him, which cool experience. Yeah. First, probably my first time ever hunting out of state. So nice. We've got, uh, I, it's funny. I think the first time that it hasn't been Turkey season that I've gotten excited about turkeys just happened the other day. I had got done talking to that guy on the road who was taking pictures of the truck. And as we're talking to him, he's like, dude, you see those turkeys just pitch across the road. And so we look up and sure enough, we drive up the road and this is all on property that we can hunt. And I guess it technically was turkey season. I could have shot one with my bow still because I think archery turkey in the fall goes the full length of archery whitetail. I'll have to check to make sure that's accurate. But anyways, they pitched down in this spot and we get over there and it was just a bachelor group of birds. I mean, two Jakes and three Toms that all had giant beards on them. And it was in a field right along. Uh, so there's a road, then a river. And as soon as you get off the road, the property that I can hunt starts. So we've got the river right there. And then it's just a big bottom field. Sometimes it floods. Most of the time it doesn't. And they, they typically plant beans in it. And then there's a couple small creeks that run through the middle of it. Dude, we have tried to kill turkeys in there so many times. It's, I mean, it's like 
they pitch across the road because on the opposite side of the road, it goes straight uphill. So they've got a perfect spot to roost at night. They pitch down into that field almost every morning or they do it on the neighbor's property. And I just can't seem to kill a bird there. But um, I've got plenty of spots, man. I'm telling you, I've got some killer turkey hunting spots. And the fact that I've had success multiple times tells you anybody can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really enjoy turkey hunting just from that aspect. And I I don't know if I've ever killed any bird the same way I killed the other one. Like running gun, sneaking up on them, having them come in. Uh, I, don't, I've, I don't know that I've ever had a tom come in and just whoop, whoop a decoy. I've had Jake's come in and do it all the time, but uh, I haven't had one do it like that, and I have never killed one with a fan, like what you're talking about, and I've oh, always yeah. wanted to try that. It, it's fun. It really is. I mean, it's, it's not like my number one go-to, typically. If I'm driving and I see one out in the field, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do this. But like, if I go and just set up in the morning, I, I try to do it the traditional way. It just never works out. Um, I, I did come close one time. I had two birds coming in. My buddy popped up and pulled the trigger way too soon. I mean, it was like 70 plus yards away and he shot and I got, I've never been as mad at someone as I was in that moment. <laughs> I was like, dude, what are you doing? There were two of them coming in and that one showed no sign that it was stopping. I mean, it was still coming and he's like, I just, uh, it looked like it was getting spooked. It was going to, it was going to take off. And I'm like, no, you just wanted to shoot before. Someone else shot excited. it, you know. Yeah, I got got excited. But, yeah, that was the only time that I've actually, like, successfully called and had birds come in that I was about to shoot. Um, other than that, it's been really odd ways of killing them. So uh, why, don't, why don't you talk a little bit about – so you've had two things also in your bio that really intrigued me. One of them is trapping, and then the other one is noodling. So yeah. I don't care which one you talk about first, but I got to hear some information on both. Well, seeing you said you hadn't had anybody that noodles on, we can talk about that first. Yeah, let's do but, that. Uh, yeah, uh, I just grew up, that's a, my dad grew up doing a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. Just anything and everything outdoors. That's what my dad did, got me into pretty much all of it. And uh, there's really not a whole lot to noodling. <laughs> uh the biggest deal is knowing knowing where holes are at where they where the catfish actually uh they'll get in there and uh just knowing those holes once you know them it's literally pretty much just as simple as sticking your hand in there and getting them to bite it so <laughs> yeah what uh, uh i mean what is that like i've seen the videos but I've never actually talked to someone who has experience with a catfish clamping down on their hand while they're underwater. I mean, are you typically completely underwater or is it the type of thing where you can reach down, keep your head above and then pull them out? Most of the time is, is someplace where heads above water. Oh, okay. uh, the few times that I've, I've had holes that were deep enough, they're not very far underneath the water. And, uh, I don't know. they, there's always these stories about people drowning and stuff like that. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's not, you, you got to get a hold of a pretty big catfish. That's going to, which is why they say, don't do it by yourself. Yeah. But, uh, 
I don't know, most of the time my head's above water, but uh, the first time you do it, it's nerve wracking. It's yeah, because <laughs> you don't really know what to expect. They tell you, well, it doesn't hurt, or you know, it, it scars up your hand a little bit, and that hurts. And it's like, like what kind of force actually comes down on your hand? And the force isn't usually what gets you. It's usually those little bitty teeth moving back and forth while you're trying to get a hold of them to keep them from moving, which is why blues are typically the ones that tear you up because they'll get a hold of you and they'll like their whole, they'll roll their whole body, which is what tears you up really bad. So dude, what a but, weird, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. And I, I've got a buddy I, I took whenever I was in high school and kid is deathly scared of snakes. Mm-hmm. And it, we got on that first one and he got a hold, got a hold of him. And, uh, after that, man, he was, he was so pumped. We were in, he had his hand in a hole and I had my hand blocking another entrance to it and actually had a snake come by like three foot, just getting carried through current ways on a, a little river. And, uh, man, it, it didn't even phase. He was so, so pumped adrenaline wise. It, and then normally like a snake gets within 30 foot and he's running. Yeah. Dude, so I mean, what what adrenaline rush associated with it is probably why people really enjoy doing it. Yeah, I was gonna say it's got to be like a temporary high. You get out there and you're fighting this fish that's latched onto your hand. What what size fish are you typically grabbing? I mean, it seems like it's got to be a pretty decent sized fish in order to get your hand inside its mouth. Uh, you, I mean, you can catch pretty small fish. They just don't fit their whole hand it's kind of like a protective inst i mean you're reaching your hand in their temporary home yeah i mean it's it's a natural reaction type deal and, uh especially once you get them trapped in there's multiple entrances and you get cut off it's kind of like cornering any wild animal i mean it's a okay fight or flight and if they can't flight they're gonna fight so yeah uh yeah i mean it's 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 just an straight adrenaline rush and you can catch little bitty fish you can catch big fish uh i think the biggest i probably ever caught was like 10 pounds so okay. nothing huge but i mean big enough yeah yeah that that would be a lot of fun i i hope to try that at some point in my life i've like i said i've watched the videos a lot of the videos i see though they're like diving underwater and i'm like man i don't know about that you know they're catching like 20 30 pounders and they're diving underwater to get them I don't yeah. like being underwater where I can't see as it is, much less having an animal latch onto my hand. Yeah. What a no. It's that's that's one of them deals. Like those guys know where those holes are at. Those are holes that are more than likely been passed down from generation to generation. And I've lost a lot of my holes because, uh, like being on a river, the channel changes, and when it does, you lose holes here and there and so you kind of have to go out and try to refine different holes that have been made yeah and uh unless you're doing it all the time that's that's kind of difficult and i don't i don't do it extremely often so it kind of ruins it whenever you spend three or four hours looking for a hole and maybe find one that don't even have a catfish in it so yeah <laughs> it's not a whole lot of fun when you're doing that <laughs> do you I mean, are there a lot of regulations around noodling? Noodling seems like such a 
like kind of a backcountry thing to do that it's like, yeah, just let them go out and catch fish with their hands. Who cares? Yeah. So there's, there's not really a lot of regulation on it. Uh, most of the time, like size limits and, and fish limits are typically the same as what like a rod and reel or jugging or trot line. You know, it's pretty similar to that. Okay. Uh, the only regulation I know that specifically applies to that is not being able to use like gaffs or spears or anything like, like hay hooks was something that they used back in the day a lot. Yeah. They put a hay hook in there and then if when it got a hold of them, then they could actually kind of gaff them with that hay hook so they didn't lose them. Okay. So other than that, it's not, it's not like totally different. You don't have to get a special license to go noodling versus like pole fishing. Not, not in Oklahoma. Okay. So I don't know what regulations in all those states. I know it's illegal in Missouri because I've talked to my uncle about it, but, uh, and there's a lot of states where it's illegal. That's interesting. It seems like a weird thing to pick a bone with as like a government agency. Like, nope, can't do that. You can you yep. can shoot a broadhead through a deer. We have no problem with that. But letting a fish bite your hand, no, nope, that's unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What uh what about trapping? What's your experience with trapping? Because that is something that I keep talking about getting into. In fact, I just got permission on some property to start trapping, um, two days ago, I made a couple phone calls and I'm really excited about it, but I also have never done it. Yeah. So, uh, growing up, we used just, uh, box traps and we had a few leg hold traps and, uh, trap coons, coyotes. I've never caught a bobcat or a fox. Uh, my buddy that's, the FFA teacher here in town actually has a couple wildlife classes and they've already caught two bobcats this year. Oh my gosh. That, so that's my dream. I want to walk up on a trap that I set and convinced a bobcat to come into. And I've got bobcats on camera. My buddy, David, he just went to Kansas and he's, I don't know if he's back yet or not, but he sent me pictures. They went and set traps the first day. He went there for like a week, went and set traps the first day came back the next day and they had a bobcat, a coyote and a fox. And this bobcat is huge and gorgeous. I mean, it's like fully spotted. You know how some bobcats, you don't have the spots that run all the way through the coat. It's like yeah. real heavy on the legs, maybe under the chin. This is like spotted all the way through. And then he sends me a message the next day and he's like, Hey, three out of five or first, first five sets we checked today, we had three coyotes in them. And I'm like, dang, man, like that sounds like a ton of fun just to take a full week. Unfortunately, where I hunt now is about 40 minutes away from where I live. And so to make it up to the to the property that I now have trapping access on, I'm like, man, here in Missouri, for sure. I think it's most states that allow trapping. You have to check them every 24 hours. And yeah. so I'm like, man, that's an that's an hour and 20 minutes of driving every day. And I don't even know how successful I'm going to be. So yeah. I don't know. I'm hoping to make do maybe a long weekend of it and just crash out there. I'll go camp or something and run traps every day and maybe predator hunt like 
during the day um, in between checking traps, but I think it'd be cool. So you've never caught a bobcat, caught plenty of coyotes though, and you said you were using box traps and then uh, foot traps. Were yeah, box, box traps are primarily for coons. Oh yeah, coons. If you want to catch something, man, a coon or a possum, man, that that's easy. So I will say, I guess I'm I'm looking at trapping as two different things. I've caught a ton of raccoons and possums in box traps because um, we had some we had several animals that were stealing chickens at the last place that I lived. And so I just started putting those out there and I'd put, I would just put a marshmallow in the trap because I heard a trick from the guy whose land we actually lived on. And he's like, dude, put a marshmallow in there. One, it smells sweet. So the animals like it already, but two, it looks like an egg. And so they'll go after it just cause they think it's an egg. And so I'm like, that's the cheapest bait I've ever heard of. And so, yeah, yeah. I did that. I can't tell you how many raccoons and possums I trapped out there that would just come in and there were chicken, I'd come out and there'd be chicken feathers everywhere and it would make me so mad. And uh, then I started trapping them and taking care of them. So um, I have done the box trap thing. I've just never done foot traps. Yeah. Yeah, so typically when I do uh, a foothold set, I usually set two, a double set, and they'll be sitting right next to each other. Uh, about as far apart as what you would think a coyote's front feet would be. Okay. And then I usually try to find a bank or a log or something like that to keep them from coming around from behind. And I'll put my bait, I dig a hole in the bank or right underneath the log where I can put some whatever type of bait, uh, sardines, which that kind of draws in your coons. But I mean, just, just anything. And then I like to have some sort of visual deal. So I'll pull feathers out of ducks I've shot or something like that and kind of throw it around the hole and uh, kind of make it look like a another coyote or something else has stashed it. And then I like to use Hallbaker's cooler and it just comes in a, a little bitty couple ounce bottle and just take a stick and I dip it down in there and kind of wipe it on the log and then throw it in the hole with whatever bait I've got in there if I have any. And then uh, just take, take your footholds and you dig a hole big enough for it to kind of sit down in, set your trap, uh, and it's usually, I like to attach both of them to the same stake and drive a stake in the ground, trap's already attached to it, you set it down the hole, and then you gotta take like a piece of cloth or something like that's what I like to do and stick over the, the actual set trigger so nothing gets underneath it so it'll go down Oh, okay. And then I take a screen with me and just put that same dirt in there and just shake the screen. It puts all that fine dirt material on top of it. And then I like to put sticks around, like kind of like a square around both those because Kyle won't typically step on a stick if there's bare dirt around for them not to step on it. Oh, okay. And uh, just kind of directs where they so step. So you just so kind of lay them down. You're not making like a... A box out of them you're just like laying right. them down and then you're trying to get them to step in the one open patch of dirt yeah yeah oh man this sounds so great i'm i might have to go buy some traps today and yeah well if you do there's uh so there's a guy on tiktok 
think his name's Chris Hammock or something like that. Okay. And he's kind of gotten into it. And there's a whole bunch of people that have been commenting on his videos, like trying to help him out. And there's like a lot of information on his videos and somebody will comment something. So he'll make that change on the next set. Nice. And kind of have that in the comments and a lot of, a lot of good information on that. Yeah. I, like I said, I've watched the videos. I've tried to do my research there's all there's so many tips and tricks that each video has like man i do this and i try to keep track of it but it's there's so much information and things that you can do that it's easy to get lost in now i will say the the properties that i now have access to trap on are they both have water on them so one of them has um a creek that runs through it another one has a creek that runs through it and then a big river that runs on the edge of it. Um, they've got a couple little patches of cover, um, like tree field edges where it goes from field to trees. And then, uh, two of them have like makeshift ponds, it, old ponds that in the, like if it rains a ton, they'll fill up, but for the most part they stay dry. And so I'm like looking at them going, okay, where would I put these traps? Are you normally doing it like on a field edge, on a river edge? I know you said on the banks. Um, where would you recommend that I set? It's, it would be very similar to trying to find like a deer set. Okay. Those pinch points and travel areas. Uh, I mean, field edges work great because they're going to travel the field edges using their nose roadways uh old ponds are really good uh, especially they don't i mean typically your wild animals don't like dipping down in if they can stay where they can kind of see and not still be hidden yeah uh, pond dams those those create kind of a travel area uh if you want more information dr grant woods i don't know if oh, you yeah. watch growing your tv on youtube he has a bunch of videos on kind of trap placement and trapping in general nice yeah i'm gonna I'm hoping over the next couple weeks to get out. I've got to actually look up when trapping season goes till. I think it goes into March maybe, um, but I could be wrong on that. But yeah, I want to definitely try to get out and get my first animal trapped this year. I just think if I catch something in a foothold, I'm going to be hooked. I, I can't imagine anything else being more exhilarating than like setting a trap, getting an animal to plant its foot in, and then walking up on that animal still alive. Like, holy cow. That. Oh, yeah, it's that that is super. I mean, the excitement that goes along with that just feeds into the next one. Yeah, and the anticipation is just that much higher next time you go check a trap because of how exciting the last one was. I've got a, uh, I've got a buddy actually the one who just went out to Kansas. He he looked up. Apparently, there's some dude that you can go and like run snowmobiles or dog sleds with up in Canada, I think it is. And you run trap lines with them for a week. It's like a guided deal. And so you go out with them, you set the traps, you run the trap line, check them. And for however much money you pay, you can keep, I think it's a Wolverine, a lynx and a wolf. Um, if you trap those and he's like, so literally you just go stay up at this remote cabin, like a wood fire, or a wood stove heat cabin, tiny thing in the middle of nowhere. And you just run trap lines for seven days. And I'm like, that is heaven on earth. Uh, my wife, that awesome. yeah, I'd be like, 
it'd be tough not to move my family up and do something like that full time after after getting to experience it. So that's now on my bucket list of things that I want to try. And um, I think I need to get my feet wet doing it here first on some small. I mean, a wolf. A wolf is not <laughs> something that you want to come across when it's stuck in a trap. And so I better figure yeah. out how to deal with coyotes first, and then maybe I can graduate and go to that. So that's that's one of the larger misconceptions that even I had whenever my dad was first showing me how to trap was the idea that you've got this trapped animal that is wanting to fight. Yeah. And most of the time it's not the case. I mean, they, they already know that they're caught whenever you get there. And so most of them are very timid. Yeah. They go to the other end and pull themselves away and kind of lay down. And uh, it's not like what you would typically think in your mind of having an animal kind of cornered. Yeah. That's what the fight most that is what I've noticed in most of the videos and then seeing people who trap like the wrong species or something that they can't keep, like watching people up north trap a lynx when like maybe in Wisconsin say you can't keep them, you, ha you can only catch bobcats and then having to see them release those animals. Yeah. Gosh, a mistaken identity trap would be a tough one. Like I, I watched both a mountain lion and a lynx. And in both cases, they took a sheet of plywood with handles on it, covered the animal's foot. So, I mean, it's on the other side. Its foot is sticking through, like, the cartoon uh, mouse hole, you know, in the wall type of thing. And then they release the trap, and then the animal runs off. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> imagine having a 120-pound mountain lion on the other side of a sheet of plywood. Yeah. What the heck? And then letting it go. And then being like, hey, man, you would you would think in that situation, like the animal understands like, hey, they just helped me out. But I've watched people release mountain lions and they come after them. Or like there was a video of a jaguar or not a jaguar. Uh, no, I think it was. It was like a jaguar released and the dude's in the truck. It's a conservation agency that releases this cat. And the dude is in the truck kind of like looking out of his window and his window is down. And this, this Jaguar gets out of the trap in the back. Like they lift the door up. It runs up to his window and jumps up and he's like trying to get his window up. It gets its paws in the window and it's just tearing the crap out of him. I'm like that thing knew. like that dude is the reason I got put in this trap and I'm going to tear him up for it. Wow, man. Yeah. Anyways. My dad has quite a bit of experience trapping us with. Him and his best friend, whenever they was in high school, they ran a trap line on the way to school and on the way home from school every single day. That's awesome. And he said the meanest thing he ever caught in a trap, they somehow ended up with an owl in a box trap. What? He says the meanest thing he ever caught. Dang. I could see wanted, that. Wanted to fight. Yeah. I could Couldn't definitely hardly see get that. Hold of, get a hold of the trap because it was wanting to dig its talons and freaking bite and i mean leather glove doesn't do a whole lot against an owl and it took them a long time to get that owl out of that box trap dude i've heard of owls attacking bow hunters like thinking that their face because you know if you have a mask on or your face is the only thing showing and the rest of you is camo it just sees that and sees a set of eyes blink and they'll come in and like accident like attack you thinking that you're just a small animal on the side of a tree I've watched hawks and stuff dive bomb my dove decoys and my my crazy critter when I'm out uh, 
predator hunting. I would not want to mess with the bird of prey, man. Those things are no. insane. Yeah. Like even the wings, like say you did get a hold of their feet, so you're not getting tore up by their talons. One, they've got a beak that is specifically designed to shred flesh. And then yeah. their wings, like talk about something with a five foot wingspan just beating you senseless. No thanks. Oh, yeah. You can watch some golden eagle videos where they use them to kill deer. It's freaking yep. insane. Dude, deer, wolves, coyotes, the ones that hunt goats out in the wild and drop them off cliffs. Man, I used to want to be an ornithologist and specifically study birds of prey. And then I found out how long you had to study with, an, uh, with a falconer in order to become a falconer yourself. And I was like, dude. I've never committed to anything that long, so I <laughs> I bailed on that idea. But I still think it'd be cool to run run falcons for ducks or doves or something like that. Rabbits, deer, whole, that's a whole different ball game. Sending a oh, golden yeah. eagle after a deer, I'm like, dude, if that thing can kill a deer, it could easily kill me. Like I have nothing aside from a shotgun with some like <laughs> double B yeah. shot that's going to defend against an eagle attack. Yeah, but. Anyways, man, well, we're just hitting over an hour. I really do appreciate you hopping on and chatting. And the fact that you're so close, we'll have to get together and do a hunt at some point because I'm just across the Missouri line. Um, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to share how people can find you, find some of your content or what, you're, what you've been up to lately. Yeah, so the only thing that I'm on is TikTok. Uh, Hanky Hunts is my profile name. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't have Facebook or Instagram or any of that anymore. I got rid of all of that. So nice. Well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be sure to add that to the link in the bio so that people can, people can find you and follow you. And then I always give my guest the final word. I call it emptying the chamber. Um, maybe this one should be like releasing the trap or, uh, sticking <laughs> your fingers in the noodle hole. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so here's your chance to give a final word to the listeners, anything you want to share with them. Yeah. Uh, if I could give any advice for somebody, if there's something outdoor wise that they want to do, it, the only way to learn is to go out and do it. So don't let inexperience or not having a certain amount of knowledge or even somebody to help you along freaking stop you from doing something you, you think you'd enjoy. So, yeah, no, that's awesome, man. I totally agree. As you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, that's me with trapping. I should just take his advice and go out and do it finally. So, um, again, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for the thanks for the chat and all the information, man. I, I really enjoyed it. Yep, you bet, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. It's crazy. I keep talking to all these guys that are actually only a few hours from me. So, we're definitely going to have to get a get together set up where a bunch of listeners, a bunch of guests, followers, other podcast hosts can all come hang out. Um, I know I keep talking about that on each episode and you guys are probably wondering when it's going to happen. I will get information and dates and details out to you guys shortly. But in the meantime, if you have not gone and filled out a review and a rating for the show, please go do that. It helps out the show greatly. Um, I'm trying to put out great content and get new guests and stuff on here for you guys. And the higher the reviews and ratings, the easier that is for me. So please go and do that. I appreciate all the love and support that you guys have shown. 
throughout the entirety of this podcast, and I hope that continues. Stay tuned, though. Like I said, there's more big news coming. Can't wait to share all of that with you. And until next time, always choose adventure and God bless. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.